recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is our cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. Great to be here. Good to have you, Zach, as a co-host today, actually. Uh, yep, that's right. My Generally, my co-host, Cliff Slotnick's here in the studio. He's not able to make it today, so uh, we've I'll got... I'll be filling in for him. CJ's filling in, and... Uh, Good to have you on the uh, fill-in spot here. We've got several excellent segments today. We'll be starting with our microband trivia quiz. We've got Wayne Lawrence from Grand Northern Products. We've got a little DIA update with the commissioner, Pete Consigli. And then we've got Jeff May from May Indoor Air Investigations. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. And our other continuing sponsor and original sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. If you would like to contact contact us here at the show, you can go to the www.talkshoe.com website and follow the directions to get your PIN number. Our show ID is 1547. It's always great to have those text messages and uh, the calling questions come in. We would also appreciate suggestions and have been getting more emails to joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. We'll pass your questions along to guests or do our best to answer them. And we also, of course, have the certification renewal credits available for those of you that have your certifications through the IAQ console. We're working on a few others as we speak. So with no further ado, let's move on to the microband trivia question for today and our fill-in for the regular Cliff Zlotnick, uh, CJ. Well, I guess I have no one to thank but myself for that little musical intro there. But, <laughs> but this, week, um, this week we have a two-part trivia question. The first, part of the, question, the first part of the question is, what are the three states of matter? In other words, what form can, can matter take on? The second, the second part of this question is, what is the process called when when matter moves directly from a, from a solid state into a gaseous state. Back to you, Joe. Okay. Thank you, Zach. Our first guest today, I believe we got a little intro music for Mr. Wayne Lawrence. Let's Absolutely. CJ comes up with here. Thank you, Zach. Wayne Lawrence is the regional sales manager for Grand Northern Products located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
He has a BA degree from Central Michigan University in 1989, and after several years in logistics and distribution, Wayne began full-time at his current position in January of 1995. Grand Northern is the nation's largest independent distributor of blast abrasives and equipment, including baking soda and dry ice. Wayne's experiences from over a thousand job sites, multitudes of wide-ranging blast applications, and years of hands-on application are among his strong points for joining us to discuss this interesting topic with respect to uh, how it works with indoor air quality. Welcome, Wayne. Are you on the line there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for being here, Wayne. We uh, really appreciate having kind of different discussions. And this is one that I get a lot in uh, courses that we teach. We hear a lot about dry ice blasting and uh, soda blasting and other types of blasting. And what I'm curious about is um, what are the some of the pros and cons of these different methods with respect to doing, say, for instance, microbial remediation? I get this a lot in crawl spaces. So let's maybe start there, Wayne. All right. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, I'm glad that you're getting a lot of questions, and I'm glad that there's a lot of talk about the process because it's something that, you know, five or six years ago, uh, folks in this industry really hadn't heard of the process, and, and it hadn't really been applied widespread. And in the last few years, obviously, the, the uh, momentum and the a number of applications that, that are using blasting have multiplied in the restoration industry. And as far as crawl spaces are concerned, it's a natural uh, that you'd find blasting in a crawl space because it's a great atmosphere to grow mold, microbial growth, first of all. And secondly, it's a place that when it comes to removing the microbes and removing the growth of the mold, um, it can be a very difficult environment to put a bunch of labor into to spend a lot of time doing that. So media blasting, whether it's dry ice or baking soda or a number of different media that can be used, um, it makes that job very much faster and more effective. It can, it can clean far and above manual methods such as sanding and scrubbing with wire brushes and, and even just damp wiping and, and vacuuming. Well, one, so of the, that's, uh, yes. one of the uh, concerns we hear from consultants and others about using these techniques is the amount of uh, particulate that is released as a, a result of using these aggressive processes. Can you go into a little sure. bit on that for us? Well, I think that uh, any process has its uh, um, personal protective equipment requirements that are specific to the process itself. And I think that uh, in, in all fairness to everyone, I think that that's a, tr a fair question to ask, and I think that it can be answered in a number of different ways. Let's compare this to known technologies such as lead abatement and asbestos abatement. Uh, those technologies have been used protective equipment-wise, um, supplied air uh, respirators, supplied air hoods, for instance, that provide a positive pressure at the operator's breathing point and provide the operator with fresh breathing air can be used very effectively to combat those types of issues. Uh, and then, of course, there are the uh, the standard full-face respirator mask with certain, you know, all varying different types of filtration that can be added to them um, should provide a, a good amount of protection against particulate matter. And as far as how fine that particulate matter is and how 
dangerous uh, any particular particulate might be, I always go back to the government recommendations, you know, the EPA or uh, other governing bodies that actually establish limits for particulate matter and uh, certain types of chemicals and organic matter. So I, I would go with their recommendations, and that's what I recommend. What about engineering controls? What kind of special engineering controls are you recommending people put in place when they're using these methods? Well, that's where you got to start drawing a line between which process you're using, because as I said, the, the, the requirements for PPE as well as engineering requirements, for instance, fans and uh, air movers and different types of, of air equipment typically, um, uh, what's required is going to vary depending on the process you're using. So, for instance, with baking soda, your main concern is uh, providing negative pressure in the space you're working in and turning the air over in the space so that you can actually uh, see what you're doing. Uh, turning the air over is one thing you can do. Um, limiting the amount of, of dust you put into the air, for instance, how much baking soda comes out through the nozzle, uh, is a control as well as proper lighting. So all of these things go together to add up to you know being able to see. Now, dry ice, on the other hand, has its own little um, intricacies, one of which is uh, the carbon dioxide that you're using, the dry ice as it goes directly from a, a solid to a gas, it is um, expanding and it's, it's a, it's the presence of carbon dioxide can be both dangerous and it is also limited by um, the, uh, again, the, the governing bodies in both the United States and Canada. No. So, again, turning air over, moving enough air through the space, and also sampling the air for oxygen levels uh, is going to be very important. Okay. Then do you sell that type of equipment as well, or do you just handle the products for, uh, and uh, I guess I didn't go into detail about what types of products right. you sell. What Do you sell right. monitoring equipment for oxygen levels, et cetera? Well, general, here's what we do. We, we're a company that sells blasting equipment and supplies, and, of course, we sell some of the ancillary equipment that's used. Um, we sell supplied air hoods. We don't sell respirator masks, for instance, but we do sell the blasting hoods uh, and, the, and the air systems that go with that. We provide some monitoring equipment. Typically, it's the breathing air monitoring equipment that we sell, and we refer people to um, specialists in, in those types of uh, tools as far as measuring the air quality inside the space where blasting is taking place. We don't pretend to be experts in that. We're experts in blasting. Uh, if it's something that we don't feel comfortable with, we refer you to experts and, and ask that you would get that monitoring equipment, for instance, from somebody who's qualified to actually guide you through that process. And I, I'm glad to refer people, but I don't try and be an expert in, in all areas. That's a great way to handle things. The other thing you mentioned that I thought was really a key point is controlling the amount of medium that you use, or media, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, that you use. Are you seeing product improvements so that it allows people to better control the amount of product they're using? Well, yeah, we've, we've actually developed our equipment that we manufacture over years of, of uh, being in this industry. Uh, it's, it's a relatively young industry. It's about 15, 16 years old. And in the very beginning, um, for instance, baking soda and dry ice were very difficult mediums to flow through equipment. 
and we've developed ways that we can flow uh, small quantities of material very effectively in the equipment that we sell. And, and that's kind of where you get into some of the differences in equipment that's on the market. Um, without getting into brand names, I, I feel very comfortable that, that we have a system that will flow baking soda and in small enough quantities that the visibility is, is still good, but that the, the work gets done. It's very easy, whether it's baking soda or dry ice, to um, flow, say, three pounds a minute. Uh, when you try and restrict that to a pound or less per minute, that's what really separates the men from the boys when it comes to equipment. And that's important not only from a visibility standpoint, but also from a cost perspective. The, the material that you use, the media, whether it's dry ice again or, or baking soda, is an, it's an expensive material if you waste it. I see. Okay. CJ has a question for so, you. Okay, so basically in this kind of a situation, less is more, right? Yeah, to a degree. That, that's absolutely true. There, there, there is a point when you don't have enough media in the airstream, again, right. under air blast technologies, when it's too lean. But there right. is that sweet spot, and that's, it tends to be about a pound a minute with baking soda. With dry ice, it's somewhere around, in my opinion, around two pounds a minute. So, you know, when you start looking at those numbers, uh, there is a sweet spot. There is, a, there is way too, there, there is too much, and there is too little. There is a very fine sweet spot, and that's what, what you really want is a machine that can run consistently in that sweet spot, and that's the difficult part. Uh, okay, I got you there. Wayne, let's go back historically a little bit. What, When these types of equipment came out, what were you typically, who were you typically selling them to? Well, initially the machine was developed, uh, soda blasting, for instance, was developed for the Statue of Liberty process. I think uh, there's been a lot of PR on that, and I think you can easily find the roots of it in the Statue of Liberty project. But beyond that, initially it was for the, uh, the oil field industry. It was a, a blast abrasive that could be used in an, in an explosive environment, and the sparking and the thermal um, buildup or, or you know, the heat that it would build up is, is non-existent. If you ground the machine and ground the nozzle, you shouldn't have any sparking whatsoever. That was the first big industry. Food processing was the second big industry. Uh, baking soda is a very, um, a very versatile media, being that it's food grade, um, it's uh, water soluble, it's got a lot of benefits that, that you didn't see tr in traditional blast media. Uh, dry ice is the same way. It's got a lot of great advantages that it, you know, it, it the, the cleanup of the media is almost non-existent. It, it turns into a gas, so it almost disappears. So if you trace that back, you're going to find industries such as the rubber mold cleaning industry was one of the first really big industries to take off. Uh, we do a lot of cleaning in bakeries and food processing facilities, again, with, with dry ice. And, and again, it just spread from there. We're in the printing industries. We're in all types of different pulp and paper, uh, corrugated, uh, just different industries that you'd find out there. And, and we're still heavy into those industries. It's just the focus in, in the indoor air quality uh, industry tends to be towards uh, remediation and restoration. And let's, let's touch on the restoration end of things. How, what are the pros and cons of dry ice versus, and, and it sounds like primarily you're dealing with dry ice and uh, baking soda, soda blasting. What about right. for fire damage? 
what uh, what are the pros and cons of each? Well, let me just preface the question with uh, you know the, the the thought behind why are we using baking soda? Why are we using dry ice? Why don't we use corn cob or walnut shell or or sand right. or some other type of media? I, I sponge is one that 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 comes up from time to time. Why don't we use those materials? Well, first of all, um, the amount of material that you throw per minute, uh, again, we talked about the ice and the soda. Um, with traditional blast media, you're typically throwing quite a bit more per minute. And the materials themselves are typically priced at a point where they need to be recycled in order to be cost effective. And they can be recycled, but when we're talking about microbial uh, remediation or if we're talking about smoke restoration, one of the last things in the world that you want to do is sweep up the garbage that's on the floor that you purposely blasted off from the surface, put it back into your machine, and then potentially blast it onto a possibly unaffected surface. That could be a real downfall. So using one-pass mediums that can be flowed uh, flowed. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but if that can be flown through through the machine at the right quantity to be cost effective, now becomes an option, and that's where it kind of leads to. So the recycling of media in these industries, uh, remediation and restoration for smoke, uh, it just doesn't make sense from uh, a recontamination standpoint, both of the equipment and of the surfaces you're clean. I see. So the the sponge blasting, I've seen. I haven't seen it done, but I've heard of people selling the sponge blasters for, for instance, lead-based paint remediation. It sounds like mm -hmm. you'd run into the same problem there, wouldn't you? I think you do to a certain degree. Um, and I think one of the things that you'll run into with, uh, with, with sponge blasting in particular is that it, if you look at the cost of the equipment that you buy to do sponge blasting, uh, and it is fairly expensive. It's uh, probably around 25 to, I don't want to get too far out on a limb here, but $25,000 is a, is a pretty rough number. Um, that type of cost, most of that cost goes into the recycling equipment to recycle the media so that it gets it clean enough to go back into the machine. But at a microbial level or at a, a level of you know, soot contamination, uh, you're never going to get that media clean so to speak, unless it goes through a very extensive process. And so the recycling of it makes it so that it's, if you can't recycle it, the cost per pound of the sponge that goes through there is too high for the process to be viable. I'm just curious. This is a question that just came to my mind, I recall. In the, what's Black Beauty? Black Beauty is a coal slag product. It, it's uh, something that comes out of the, uh, it's a side, uh, or a, uh, oh, it's a, it's a material that comes from, uh, processing steel and uh, the, the coal that they burn to, to fire the, the uh, blast furnaces, it, it actually produces a slag. And that, that slag, that leftover spent product, is ground up and, and that's what Black Beauty is. It's, it's coal slag. It's a hard abrasive. It typically doesn't recycle very well and it's quite aggressive. Uh, and that's the other part of what makes baking soda and dry ice uh, to you know, look so nice is that they don't really tear the surface apart like Black Beauty or sand can. And, and that's why a lot of people do rely on these softer, less damaging media. When you, you speak about these softer, less damaging media, do you know off the top of your head, and I, I don't want to you know, go into things that you don't deal with on a regular basis, how much, and I guess it varies based on the pressure, et cetera, but... How much wood do you take off when you remove soot with, let's say, uh, dry ice? Okay. 
I don't know that there's ever been an actual study to, to tell us how much wood is being taken off. And one of the reasons there is because so much of it depends on what, what blast pressure do you blast at. Do you blast at 100 PSI or do you blast at 50? And then the same thing is true with soda and all media. The, the, the speed or the pressure at which you blast is going to dictate how much surface comes off. And then, of course, nozzle size, nozzle geometry, whether it's a fan nozzle or a round nozzle, um, those types of things play into that. Let me just say that with proper media blasting, you should be taking off a small portion of the surface. Uh, I generally tell people it's about a, a millimeter. Okay. So you just want it to take off that top millimeter, and that way you're, you're also not affecting the structural integrity, which is another issue, I guess, that you have right. to uh, talk to people about. We've, yeah. uh, you know, we've played with dry ice blasting machines here, and you can, if you hold it on one spot long enough, you put a hole in the piece of uh, two yeah. by four. Right. So, I guess yeah. you you have to use some common sense, obviously. Um, so, yeah. what what makes these newer models? Let's let's talk a little bit more about some of the models that are out there, and and I don't want to. We don't need to get into names, but I keep seeing new models coming out. What do you what do you see with respect to changes? in the newer models? Fair question. I think that, uh, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to try and be as nice to the industry as I possibly can. Um, I personally see that there have not been a lot of dramatic changes in the equipment in the last six or seven years. Uh, really, we've made some small modifications and some, some ergonomic improvements, but quite honestly, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a successful market that now has more people wanting to sell their equipment into the market. And I don't think that there's been a lot of improvements, but I think from a marketing standpoint, uh, when you come into the market and you introduce, you know, brand X machine, uh, you got to say something about it. Uh, you know, here's our new machine and here's why we think it's the best on the market. But quite honestly, I've, I've been doing this a long time and I, I know that the developments that we put into our machinery comes from feedback from the field and and we're really we really have a fairly successful system both on the dry ice side and on the uh, the baking soda side so I don't think there's been a lot of changes necessarily except in the market itself let me come back to storing the media in a moment be be before we do though um, one of the things that has changed at least in the advertising that I see at conferences, et cetera, is the pricing has come down dramatically. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what to look for with respect to why pricing has come down? Is it that there is are less options? Is that that there are more, you know, it's, uh, what do you call it, um, the demand is higher and therefore sometimes the price goes down? What do you see with respect to the pricing? Well, I guess in pricing, um, our pricing has remained fairly stable over the last five or six years. Uh, obviously, steel has gone up in price, and you know we've kind of fought some of the, the rises in, in prices. Um, but as far as the equipment is concerned, I, I would say if you're seeing a reduction in prices, it has to do with uh, you know people trying to fill that lower end of the market with, with product. When you've got a demand for a product and you've got a, a – you know, suppliers like myself that are providing stuff at the top end of the market. And, and when I say the top end, I don't mean, you know, bright and shiny. What I mean is a, a very effective piece of equipment. Um, a lot of times you'll see, uh, you know, manufacturers come in at that lower end of the market to 
pick up that portion of the market, I guess is the best way to put it. And uh, whether it's good equipment or bad equipment, I, I'd like to comment on that individually. But uh, for the most part in this industry, you will get what you pay for. And uh, I, I just, I've, I've dealt with many, many customers in my, I've been doing this 12 years, uh, dealt with a lot of customers who buy cheap initially and then come to us to help try and solve the problems. And, and a lot of times what I hear is, well, we should have done this right the first time. And I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. I think that, that you'll find in this industry that that's not, that's not the first time this has happened with equipment and this and were, the process becomes popular. And this or many other industries. Let's just get a ballpark idea. How much should you expect to pay for a dry ice blasting setup? I think, personally, that you should be spending, for dry ice, you should be spending somewhere between $16,500 and $20,000. So okay. I think you can be very comfortable and have the right tools for $20,000. Plus, I know that's a lot of money, uh, but that's, that's, where, that's what I think. Plus, you've got to have a compressor for... Plus the compressor, that is true. Uh, most of my customers do not purchase compressors. They rent them. However, to purchase a compressor on the used market, which a lot of folks do buy used compressors, uh, you'll spend around five to six thousand dollars for a brand new compressor. You'd spend twelve to fifteen thousand. So you could be anywhere from the fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollar, even thirty thousand dollar range to get uh, a good piece of equipment out there on on these projects. For dry ice, yes. Now, soda blasting, uh, one of the popular aspects of it is that it tends to be a less expensive process. The system we recommend sells for about seven to eight thousand dollars. And of course, the compressor requirement for either process is the same. Again, you can add six to twelve to fifteen thousand for the compressor. So, uh, using the same thought there, you're looking at you know, eight thousand plus, say twelve thousand. You're talking twenty thousand there, including the compressor. So now we've got the problem of how do we do we have access to the media, dry ice versus soda, and can we store the media? Can you comment on those two? Issues? Well, obviously, yeah, with, with dry ice, you can't store the media. Anybody who's dealt with dry ice to any degree knows that it, it uh, goes from a solid to a gas, and, and uh, you know, it, it perishes, or it's, it's a perishable material that has a shelf life from its manufacture date of about five days. And I'm not, I'm not so concerned uh, as far as, you know, where you are in the country. You can usually get dry ice to your, your spot. The problem that you run into with a perishable material like dry ice is that if your job is not able to start on the day that you thought it was going to start, if you've already bought the ice, the clock is ticking, and, and that's not going to change. Uh, with, with baking soda, you, you do have a pretty reliable network of distributors across the country. Um, I think that both dry ice and baking soda are relatively um, accessible in most areas of the country. And with baking soda, obviously, if you plan ahead, you could buy enough material that you'd have it on hand for your job, and it should be good for at least a year on the shelf as long as you keep it out of the rain. What are the relative costs of the two? Well, I can, I can spend another 20 minutes talking about the, the cost <laughs> of different medias you know, and, and how they compare. What I will say is that uh, dry ice tends to be about twice as expensive minute per minute to operate when you look at the consumable items such as the, the, the dry ice and or the baking soda. 
So generally I tell people, you know, you're going to be spending uh, 10 to 15 percent of your total billable dollars will be spent on baking soda. So 10 to 15 percent of what you charge to the customer uh, would go towards soda. On ice, I tend to tell people it's going to be between 15 and 25 percent. So it's a significant difference, but uh, again, there are, there are some arguments on the other side that say, you know, the cleanup is, is far less with the, uh, with the dry ice than it is with the baking soda, so that might make up for some of that there. Exactly, exactly. That's a great way of uh, explaining that issue. Now, the, the other issue that comes up from time to time is um, what types of damage may be caused to other materials. I mean, you don't generally run into a situation where you're just, you know, ice blasting wood, you run into wiring, you run into duct work, you run into other types of materials. What kind of damage can be caused to these materials and how do you address that issue? Well, generally, either process, the dry ice or the baking soda, uh, and I, I should say this, baking soda is generally applied at a slightly lower pressure than what you generally see dry ice applied at. Um, that aside, most modern building materials, including the wood, including the wiring, uh, including PVC and coaxial cable, that type of material, generally is not affected by either one of these blast processes. Uh, generally, you can blast right over modern wiring with, with no damage whatsoever. Some, are, some older wiring, such as the fabric-coated wires, the, uh, the old post and wire or whatever they called that, uh, the ancient wiring like that can, can definitely be damaged, and in most jobs, I would recommend that those wires either be masked or replaced. CJ, uh, you're, and, go, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Okay, CJ? Uh, yeah. Is, um, with, re um, with regard to wiring, the, these days uh, in, in office buildings and data centers in particular, you see a lot more fiber optics than you used to. Is, would fiber optics be affected by it in, in any way? I'm not an expert there, so I'm just going to give you my layman's uh, answer to that question. All right. That is that I think that fiber optic cable is, is probably uh, fairly durable uh, to the point where it might compare to, uh, to electrical wiring. All right. And, and I assume that it has the same type of uh, jacketing, and I would think that blasting over it should not cause a problem to fiber optic cables, but I... I'd like some testing to be done there before I really give you a solid answer because that is a fairly high-tech um, uh, material, and, and I just am not an expert there to know that. All right. Well, all right, well thanks for your, um, thanks for your answer. Though. Honesty on it, too. And are you aware of any of this type of research that's going on right now? I mean, as, with respect to what are the particulate levels that are being generated during these types of projects? What, how does it affect other products in the area? Who's doing that type of research, if anybody? Well, I think uh, I, I think that's a fair question. Again, I, I don't think that anybody, in, in a structured way, is doing any type of testing. Um, I've actually looked around, and I, I was looking for some information about uh, dry ice and, and carbon dioxide levels. You know, how much can you breathe? How, what's what's a what's a bad level? You know, what is it that you have to protect yourself against? Uh, and I also look at that in the uh, the soda end of it. You know, I'm looking for you know what what type of uh, you know dust levels can you breathe without a respirator and and so forth. And those things, you know, the EPA and and um, 
you know, the governing bodies of, of both uh, the United States and Canada are fairly helpful at their websites. If you punch in, you know, the material, they can tell you how much is going to be bad for you. Um, and I, the only study that I know of that's been done, excuse me, it was in uh, Canada in the summer of 2006, and and th that was fairly telling. And it talked a little bit about noise, a little bit about carbon dioxide exposure, and a little bit about oxygen levels. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know of anybody that's doing any formalized testing. Most of what we get is is from feedback from the field. Um, you know, if somebody, let's say, goes in and, and damages something with with a blasting process, many times we'll hear about that, and you know, we'll we'll incorporate that knowledge into our training. And that's one thing that we as a company offer, and that's what makes makes us a little bit different than some of our others out there, is that we actually provide training with the equipment. When it's purchased from us, we come out and we teach the people how to use it uh, on these applications. And that's one of the things that we'll discuss is how to protect electrical gear, uh, how to protect you know things that might be damaged by the process. Uh, so again, it's it's a lot of it's uh, you know developed in the field by contractors using it, and then again it gets kind of formalized into things like uh, protocols. Well, Wayne, we appreciate you joining us. And before you go, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed? Well, this is a conversation that you know I'm glad that we're having it, and I, I have this conversation with with customers almost every single day in, in one part or another. I've answered these questions hundreds of times, and you know, you're know you asking the right questions. And, and I think that anybody that's listening to this show right now um, is has an open mind and is thinking about their profession, and I, that I appreciate. And that's why I agreed to come here today was to to you know talk to an audience that cares about what they're doing, and I'm glad the questions are being asked. What I would leave you with is when you're getting into this process, Ask those hard questions. Make sure that whoever you're dealing with is able to answer these questions effectively and provide you with a process that's going to work for you. You don't want to spend this kind of money on a process that doesn't work, and there's a whole lot of people out there that will, will gladly take your money. It's just make sure you get what you're asking for. Can you? I, a lot of times we ask if people can stick around. I don't, at the end of the show, we'll have a little round table, and I, I know our second guest may want to ask a couple questions. Do you, can, do you okay. have time to stick around, Wayne? Sure, no problem at all. Great. Before we uh, put you on mute, though, can you tell our listeners how they would contact you and get more information about your company? Well, the best way to reach me is uh, with my cell phone. It's uh, area code 317-442-3507. Uh, just give that a call. If I don't answer, I'll leave a message and I'll get back to them. Uh, as far as you know, information about the company, and we're a fairly uh, diverse company. If you go to our website, you're going to find a lot of information about industrial applications of the other equipment that we manufacture and sell. Uh, your best bet probably is to make that phone call, and what we can do is send information to you individually that would address your industry, whether it's restoration of, of smoke and fire, mold, you know, graffiti, some of the other things that people get into, uh, we can address those and send you information that's specific, and uh, that's probably the most helpful way to get started. Okay, and that was 317-442-3507 for Wayne Lawrence of Grand Northern Products, and uh, the website is just grandnorthern.com, so I guess if you wanted to, you could go on and 
some of our contractors do more than just indoor air quality style, so they may be interested in looking at your other products as well. Sure. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Wayne. We will uh, put you on mute, and we'll bring you back in. We've got some listeners that may have questions as well. I haven't had a chance to get to them today. We've got a pretty packed lineup, so I'm going to move on to our next segment, and uh, that's going to be the uh, – the. Uh, let's see. Where is the next segment here? Is it yeah, CJ? I believe that's going to be the commish. Oh, the commish has an update for us here from the new uh, – Gretzky. I didn't come to see Lemieux, any of those other pretty boys, and all that fancy stuff to do. I came to see the Hanson brothers. Take on Dave the Hammer Schultz, drop their gloves, do the tango, and beat each other to a bloody pole. Want to see a hockey fight, little Donnie Brook, a little brew, ha ha. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate that. My pleasure, Joe. Pete, are you with us? Pete Consigli. Hello, Pete. Try IQ Guess 4. Maybe he's on there. Nah. Having a little technical difficulty for trying to get Pete in here. We see the watchdog down there. Try watchdog one more time. Hello, Pete. Yes, oh, he's not there. Dialed in unmuted. All right. Well, we'll move on, and we'll, we'll come back we'll... to Pete in a little bit. He's uh, setting up the Donnybrook for the new Disaster Industry Association. Uh, used to be ASCAR, the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. We'll bring Pete back in. Maybe you can, if you hear us, you can dial back in on that uh, guest four line, Pete. Our next guest, uh, if we got a little intro music for him, I believe. And we do. Thank you, CJ. But it's Thank you, CJ. Uh, of course. Jeff May is the president of May Home Inspections, Inc. Uh, also, May Indoor Air Investigations. I don't know. I'm looking at the back of the book. One has May Home Inspections, and I've got May Air Indoor Air Investigations on my uh, little resume here. Jeff is the uh, conducts indoor environmental surveys in homes, schools, and off, uh, offices. He has authored several books. One I'm holding in my hand, My House is Killing Me, one of my favorites. Uh, he's also had the Home Guide for Families with Allergies and Asthma, the Mold Survival Guide for Your Home and Health, and Spaceship Earth, Physical Science. Jeff is a uh, graduate from the Columbia College in chemistry. He's also got, gone to Harvard University and got his master's degree there in organic chemistry, and he's a well-known speaker, lecturer, and uh, writer in the indoor air quality industry, and we're very fortunate to have him on today. Jeff, are you on the line? Hello, Jeff. I think he's three. Uh, Zach, you got to get three. Hello, Jeff. Nope. Nope. Uh, this is Wayne. I'm sorry, Wayne. It should be one. Hmm, he's not there. Okay, we lost Jeff, but he'll be, maybe he can dial back in. In the, in the meantime, let's see if uh, Pete got back on yet. Yeah. Watchdog, are you on there? No, he's not. Technical difficulties. Hey, it happens to the best of us. Indeed it does. That's all right. We can... Indeed, indeed it does. All right. We had uh, IAQ guest number one was... There he is. There he is. All right. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Jeff. I got disconnected, Joe. There you are. There we are. There we go. I'm back. Hey, I'm here. he's back. He's ready to roll. Ready to rumble. <laughs> yeah. We really... Speaking of rumble... 
Actually, I sold my home inspection business, so all I do is air quality now. That's it, May Indoor Air Investigations. May Indoor Air Investigations. Yes, and the latest book was My Office is Killing Me. I wrote that science book, uh, Spaceship Earth, when I was a kid. <laughs> no kidding. So yeah, that's a... Done. That's a long time ago. Long, oh, 90, 1981, I see on here. Yeah. So, uh, okay. And then well, there was My House is Killing Me, which was my first introduction to your uh, your works here, and I find it fascinating. And then my wife picked it up, Jeff, and uh, I'll never forgive you. Uh, uh, I've been acting ever since, right? <laughs> my honey-to-do list grew tremendously. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, actually, she loved it as well, and, and we're very happy to have you on the program. And uh, so you have you started out doing home inspections, and now you've gotten into the indoor air quality industry. How long have you been specializing in just indoor air quality? Uh, well, I started actually in in uh, 1992 doing the indoor air quality, and it was just kind of a side thing in the beginning, and then it evolved gradually into basically all that I do. So I, I sold the other business and uh, doing full time. Uh, investigations in schools and homes and offices, whatever. Very well known, and I'm just curious, are you a, a sole proprietor? Do you have other people that work with you as well? I did for a while. I had a couple of people. I just actually, my, my wife works full-time with me now, so it's just uh, it's just the two of us. We do, and we actually do some of the work together out in the field. And that would be Connie? Yep. Excellent. That's... He's the co-author of the Mold Survival Guide, and actually the next book too. We have another one; uh, it's due in about a week. Oh, really? Can you tell us a little bit about that one? It's a sort of a uh, oh, how can I say? It's a sort of a. It, it's a very simple book compared to the others. It's just a, it's a kind of a book of tips. It's a really just you know we we would hear from from a lot of people. We get emails and calls from people, and they you know they just want. They don't want to have anything explained to them. I mean, I was a science teacher. I like people to understand things. And they, everybody says, just you know, tell me what to do. So that book will just be lots and lots of tips on what to do to keep uh, you know, the indoor air healthy. That sounds like that is something that we'll have to get a copy of when it comes out, Jeff. And you expect that in the next month or so, you say? No, oh, no. Well, the manuscript is due, but it'll be a while before you'll have to... Uh, you know, do some more vacuuming, Joe. Sometime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did a little more than vacuuming after that. But, uh... <laughs> okay. It takes, about a, it takes at least a year, a year and a half. I see. Well, that was actually one of the things I enjoyed about My House is Killing Me. You gave some very practical tips for homeowners. And, and I'm curious, do you get involved on in writing protocols for projects, or do you primarily just go in and tell people what to do and then give them a list of contractors? How do you handle that? Yeah, but that's sort of what I do. I mean, I, I don't uh, do much in the way of sort of specifying. I just generally outline things. What, what I really enjoy is solving problems. You know, people have some, some issues, and then I go in and I take my air samples and my dust samples, and then and then I, I do all my own microscopy, and you know, I just look at the samples. I might take, uh, you know, 20, 30 samples in a, you know, in a small space. And then uh, what it allows me to do is to sort of figure out the source. It's, it kind of drives me crazy when people go in and take, 
you know, sample or two of the air, and then they say, oh, you know, you've got a problem with, you know, penicillium or aspergillus or something, it's elevated, and then the, 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 the building occupant doesn't know what to do. There's no answer there because the source hasn't been located. So you do your own analysis. Do you do it on site? Do you take it back to your own uh, spot, or do you do both? Well, I, you know, I, I, I have a microscope in my office with a, with a camera, and then I also have one that I sometimes travel with. So on occasion in some emergencies or for whatever, you know, for various reasons where people needed to know things on the spot. But what I found is that it's too easy to make mistakes looking at samples for very quickly in a short period of time on site. So if you just want to find out if something is mold or not, I think that's fine. Uh, but you know, some of the more subtle things require oil immersion, and a lot you know it takes a while for the stain to take, and you can't really rush through these things. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the uh, Army. Are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with EPA. Well, now it's the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index and PCR. Have you been playing with that at all, Jeff? Uh, no, and. I did actually, you know, I just had an article in that indoor environment connections. I think the, um, that, what is it, QPCR, I think it's going to be too, it, it may be too sensitive. I think it's going to be useful for, for some things, very useful, and it's a terrific sort of research tool. But, I mean, for everyday uh, analysis, it's probably, it's, it's really overkill. Uh, I mean, the, the greatest tool, as far as I'm concerned, for all, all, air quality work, at least with bioaerosol anyway, is the, is the microscope. And I guess your own uh, nose and eyes and ears as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's really key, yeah. You've got to learn to listen to what the customers and clients are telling you and then try and figure out what the problem is. And I'm curious, do you work with any other inspectors? Do you do any training courses? Have you ever been, you know, do you do guest speaking? Oh, oh, I do uh, lots of speaking. I've given, you know, hundreds of talks. I'm doing one at that Maine Indoor Air Quality uh, meeting in March. and uh, done some for uh, IACWA. I did, and uh, I actually taught training. I had, uh, I had two or three sessions uh, of um, teaching people how to do microscopy. It was actually it was a lot of fun. I had a video camera, the microscope, and 10 stations, and there are some people out there now who that's all they do, really. They started doing it you know, as a result of that course, and now they just that's all they do is air quality. All right. And uh, you don't do any home inspections at all now. Do you? I'm just curious what you tell people who are looking for a good home inspector with your background. What type of tip do you give to a consumer who's looking for a good home inspector? Don't take the real estate agent's recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great, I mean, a lot of real estate agents are very, you know, reputable and et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is that if a home inspector is very, very thorough, uh, they're, they're not really going to be getting, uh, they're not going to be getting the, the best inspection they could if they're going to, if they referral to the broker. Because you can't, you know, you, there's a lot of money uh, riding on every deal and there's, you know, thousands of dollars in commission and if you, you know, I, my experience with, as a, when I was doing that work is, was that if you, 
if you mess up a deal because of something that you find on a home inspection, the real estate agent never calls you back. They never refer anybody to you again because they've lost their commission. Uh, my partner left some questions here, and I think I'd like to get Zach to jump in for a moment and ask a Absolutely. few of these questions. Absolutely. What, what effect does an IEQ problem have on a family's interpersonal relationships? Well, it's uh, it can it can be very very straining. Uh, I mean, in, in 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 also places of work as well. I mean, usually there there are only a small number of people, maybe one person who's really suffering. It's very common to find, you know, the husband who's at work all day. Let's say he doesn't have exposure at home, whereas his wife may be home a lot more during the day, and the kids are home, and they have much higher exposures, and they're more likely to be sensitized and uh and they just they don't uh they really don't believe in uh, they don't believe it they just think the wives are complaining you know <laughs> the kids are complaining and i mean i've actually had some people who it's happened to me i think maybe twice now where they got the report and then the wife said you know hey screw you and they got divorced <laughs> and i didn't get sued <laughs> but you know they finally they realized you know there was a reason you know and uh, is there some type of statistical analysis that you've done on this or is there some data on who is affected more as far as target groups men women children uh, I don't have that so much uh, you know as, uh, <clears throat> but that's a, an observation that uh, what the statistical analysis I did do I actually compared 600 uh, sick buildings to 300 control buildings that I had in inspected and I what I found was that the the um, the likelihood of having respiratory problems was twice as great if you had central air conditioning in a in a home, hmm. or if you had a finished basement with carpet. That was also very very high. And the interesting thing that came out of it was that that visible water stains and damage was not that highly correlated. And what it really what it told me was that really the biggest problem. In, in, in homes, and it's actually in other buildings, in, in bigger buildings too, it's the bioaerosol coming from the air conditioning system where you've got wet dust all the time. And then carpets, because they can have huge infestations of mold as a result of high humidity or mold, whatever, and, and you don't see it. You walk on it and you have tremendous uh, exposure because of the disturbance of the mold. CJ? Your um, your comments on carpet actually actually made me think of something. I every, every, every day I every day I go to the gym and I work out. And where I work out, some somebody thought, oh well, let's put carpet in the men's locker room where where, where quite possibly <laughs> hundreds of guys are coming out of the showers dripping wet and walking on it. As I'm as I'm and as I'm sure you're aware of, uh, athlete's foot is technically a fungus. So are I you up to they have carpeted. Locker room? Yes. Yes. The the actual section where the lockers are are is carpeted. Is carpeted. Why do you go there? <laughs> <laughs> because it's close to home. He wears plastic, those little plastic uh, sandals. Uh, when oh, trust me. Out. Trust me. I have that, and I disinfect my gym towels every week. I have a fresh <laughs> towel every day. Trust me. Good. Good. <laughs> what? That's, that's amazing. I know one of the more difficult issues that 
people who do indoor air quality investigations face are odor problems. Jeff, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the common odor problems that you run into? Yeah, yeah they're, the odor problems are a killer. I mean, they're very, very hard to, to you know, sort of resolve and, and, and to figure out. And, and actually, we have a test in the book. We talk about this thing. I, I actually devised this thing. Uh, it's called an aluminum, the uh, paper towel or aluminum foil test. Uh, you know, if you have an odor coming from a surface, you just can't locate that. And so what, what I have people do is take a nice, clean paper towel and then fold it in half twice and then just lay it on that surface and then cover it with a piece of aluminum foil and tape it in place. Now, if the surface is off-gassing, the paper towel will absorb the odor. And uh, you do that. You leave it in place for a day. You can put, like, 20 pieces of you know, foil in, in an environment, do ceilings, walls, floors, uh, and you label them and number them, and then you, you remove it, you fold it up very quickly because the aluminum foil then seals in that odor. And you go to a place where there's no odor outside, if that's convenient, and then you sniff them one by one. And <clears throat> if it's the source, then that will actually, uh, you know, it, it'll be obvious. And <laughs> the way I discovered that was sort of funny. It was, in a, it was actually a law office. And Nobody can go into this one meeting room because they would get sick, they would get nauseous and have headaches and things. So for six months, they couldn't use that room. And I actually, I went in there, I spent about an hour and a half, I was taking all dust samples and surface samples. And finally, I, I noticed that there was a, a yellow page sitting on top of the table, this beautiful mahogany table. And I picked it up and I sniffed the top and there was no odor at the top of the book. And then I flipped it over, and I smelled the bottom, and it reeked of butyric acid, which is a, you know, bacterial product, uh, like, you know, from in a sponge. Someone had wiped the table with a dirty sponge, and for six months, nobody could go into that room. And we just we cleaned the table with a little ammonia, which was the base, and neutralized the butyric acid. And the smell went away. They were eating lunch there the next day. So, wow. based on that that observation, <clears throat> I I came up with that uh, aluminum aluminum foil paper towel test. What other kinds of odor problems do you run into? I just it just so happens I just came back from Florida, and um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. There's a a wallboard that's apparently causing some odor issues. Have you heard about that at all? It's well, I'm not. I haven't heard about specifically the wallboard, but I have had a lot of problems with paint is some particular manufacturer actually where uh, it's only on, on, on sunny warm days and it, and where you get this like really sickening mercaptan like odor and that's coming uh, from the paint. So I've had that in, in a couple of situations and then in, it actually went and <laughs> looked at a place in New York where a woman was chemically sensitive built this house with tile floors everything was supposed to be perfect and I you walk in the door and you know I just about had a headache in about in seconds and uh, what we what we figured out was the problem was the joint compound it was so weird you'd smell the wall and there'd be no odor and every 16 inches on center there was this terrible terrible smell irritating and what they had put someone had put fungicide in the joint compound so it only smelled at the inside and outside corners of the drywall and then where they had been nailed onto the studs. Hmm. And other types of odor problems that, that you run into, um, what about like in HVAC systems? What's the most common 
problem you find with respect to odors in HVAC systems? Well, most, I guess you know just where the where the uh, where the liners have gotten wet, and uh, you know it's funny you get this sort of it's this sort of ecological you know growth. You have the first you know the primary colonizers, and you get bacteria, and then you get yeast, and and if you you know mold. So that seems to be the you know the most common odor problem there. Same, I guess I would say probably bacteria, mold, and carpets. Very obviously, very very common. Uh, we had let's see, uh, strange odors. We talk about it in the book. There for for a long time, the uh, window screens were made made out of uh, by one manufacturer really in the whole country, and I think it was in Tennessee, and they were vinyl. Uh, fiberglass screens, and that could make a whole house smell when the sun would hit them. And uh, you know, you get these strange things like people, you know, have no no odor until 10 o'clock or two in the afternoon or something, and or it disappears suddenly when the part of the house shades another part. Uh, <clears throat> so there've been a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, screen. Off-gassing problems, paint problems, uh, sewer gas is obviously another one. You know, intermittent sewer gas problems causes people to have headaches. I've got a, a question that Cliff left behind. What do-it-yourself IAQ disasters have you encountered? <laughs> oh, I guess uh, all kinds. But uh, you know, the <laughs> I got my I like those uh, those drier uh, when people. With the energy crisis, they were trying to humidify their house, and they put those—I uh, can't even think of what they call them now. These, you know, those baskets with the water inside them. And I actually had one. Lint uh, traps. What do they call? Yeah, lint traps, right? The water lint traps. They'd actually—they put uh, there was enough cellulose in there that Stachybotrys was actually growing. Wow! Growing oh God! In the lint trap, and then another guy built a—he uh, uh, built a. Um, a greenhouse on the side of his house and incorporated that as part of his uh, the return system where he would sort of, you know, preheating the air in the greenhouse. But they were mostly just mushrooms growing in, you know, dirt. <laughs> and they were sick. I mean, they, these people were ill. I mean, they, um, people that uh, vented it dryer into the basement through the made even little filters, you know, put the, like to try and filter the lint out. Well, it just uh, goes on and on, I guess. What, um, I'm, I'm curious, what about uh, as far as people who are asthmatic or prone to allergies, what type of heating system do you recommend for those types of people? Yeah, well, no, I mean, no question about it. I, I recommend uh, <coughs> a, uh, you know, hot, forced hot water and not, you know, central air or heat pump or any of that, I mean, or furnace, I should say. Now, um, you have to sort of draw a little line here because a lot of, you know, there, a lot of people have asthma as a result of, let's say, tree and grass pollen or outdoor mold, and those people really have to have their indoor air sort of very well filtered. So they do need to have some sort of air conditioning set up or filtration or what have you. But the, the big problem that I find is that if you have central air conditioning uh, in, in any building, actually, what, what happens is that you've got moisture, you have mostly inadequate filtration, so you have dust accumulation on the coil, you get buildup of all kinds of microbial 
uh, <clears throat> growth, and and so that that material, which is mostly kind of wet in the air conditioning season, dries out during the heating season, and you get a lot of bioaerosol. So people who have uh, systems, central systems with air conditioning and heating combined, they are exposed to the same allergens, you know, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And so that really raises the likelihood that they're going to get some sort of immune response. If you got baseboard, if you have baseboard convectors, at least for most of the for most of the winter season, you're not going to have the exposure to the bioaerosol. In the swing seasons, you have open windows, so really you're only dealing with with the air conditioning season, and and that makes it a lot simpler. So they ought to be separate heating and, and separate cooling. I see. What um IAQ problems have you encountered related to fuel oil? Cliff left that question for us as well. Well, I I suppose most well fuel oil is a problem mostly, uh, you know, because of uh, of leaks. There've been a lot of situations where you know people who have chemical sensitivities. They get the um, fuel oil uh, odors are a problem. I have had I actually had one. A, uh, and this is interesting. Where I, I, I use that TIF 8800. If people are familiar with that, it's a great. It's a combustible gas meter detector, and it, it makes noise. It's ticking sound. Uh, great for finding sources of odors. And uh, he went into the basement of this place, and there was this intermittent uh, <coughs> in screeching increase, and and you kind of follow the sort of odor back to its source. And it, and took me to the gasket on the top of the oil tank. The gasket was loose, and it just so happened that the air vent for uh, for this thing was facing, I guess, northwest. So the, the prevailing winds would blow against this thing and actually pressurize the tank, and then the fumes would come out of the out of the gasket. So they had a constant oil smell because of that. Uh, and that was an easy uh, an easy fix. What, what's been some of the most difficult? fixes that you're, or difficult problems that you've encountered, hardest to solve? Well, I, I suppose the, you know, situations where you, you go in and, and you don't really, you don't really see anything uh, in, in the samples, and often what I'll do in those situations is to just go, go from, let's say normally I look at things at 400 uh, magnification, and you go up to 1,000, and it's really, it's just unbelievable what you'll find sometimes, and they'll be, uh, you look at the samples from a building, and there'll be really not much to see, no mold spores particularly, but just a lot of little amorphous little pink things that don't look like much of anything, and when you go to a higher magnification, you suddenly, you can see that the, they're like little clusters of bacteria and broken mold spores and hyphae, and you realize that, that um, let's say, the carpet, or actually, look, at just yet last night I was <laughs> looking at a sample, and there was all kinds of little clumps of microbial stuff coming out of the heating system, and, but you could not, you would never see that unless you really focus in on, on that sample at a, at a very high magnification. So, uh, you see, people are sick. But, you know, there doesn't seem to be any obvious reason. But when you look a little more carefully at the sample, you see that there's a really good reason for their, for their illness. What about uh, some of the IAQ problems that are attributed to fireplaces or these natural gas fireplaces? I, I guess the, uh, I don't like those, uh, 
those fireplaces that you know that vent inside. A lot of them, you know, they'll have uh, reversal of the you know the draft. There's combustion products, and actually you can get some pretty good uh, sooting. You know that uh, thermal telegraphing. You can uh, because the flame the the flame is yellow. Those are um, not complete combustion in the flame. People like candles. People like uh, those those gas logs because the flame isn't just blue. It's that golden sort of yellow color of the incandescent carbon particles. And and if you don't have good uh, venting, those things get into the environment and you you know you breathe them in. That's not so great. But then they deposit all over the ceilings and the walls and the cold spots. And uh, and you got a big mess to clean up. The costly repainting. Anything that uh, before we go back to our other guests and do a little round table here, I think we've got back Pete, and I know uh, Wayne is still on the phone as well. It looks like um, anything you'd like to add that we missed, Jeff? Uh, I guess the the most important thing, and this is sort of the topic of that main the talk I'm going to be doing in Maine, is that you know you have to believe people. You know, just because you take uh, sample and there's not a lot of VOC or you're not getting any, you know, you culture the air and there's very few mold spores and bacteria. And if people are, are having serious allergy problems or asthma or what have you in the building, there's, there's really something wrong. And you just, you have to keep looking until you find, you know, you find out what it is. They're not, you know, most people aren't in there. They're not going to be lying. And you can see that they have the symptoms they're having. So, um, it's just it's too easy to you know to sort of discount these things uh, just because the tests that you did didn't really detect what you know what the problem is so listen more closely and continue to work with the folks until you figure out what exactly their problem is yep exactly and that's the uh presentation you'll be doing for what the main indoor air quality council or main yeah. indoor air yeah. quality yeah, that's, yeah when is that coming up jeff uh, I think, uh, actually, it's March, what is it, yeah, March 28th. It's an all-day uh, an all day session in uh, in Maine. Richard Shaughnessy, I think, is going to be the, uh, the uh, what is it, the kickoff speaker there. Sounds like a great lineup. We had Richard on not too long ago. He's doing some really interesting research. Yeah. Um, we've uh, really enjoyed working with him. How can listeners... Get more information about you, your books, and your services. Well, we have uh, we've got two websites. Uh, Mayindoorair.com is one, and they can email me, Jeff at Mayindoorair.com, if they have a question. And then there is also www.myhousekillingme.com. <laughs> great, great. Well, can you stick on the line for just a moment here? Let's see if we can bring sure. it back. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jeff. Let's see if uh, Wayne's still on. Wayne, are I'm you still, still there? Okay. I uh, am still here. Great. And let's see if we've got the commission on here. Pete, number four. There he is. Hey. Holy cow, Pete. Sounds like you're ready to fall off the table there. Yes, sir, I am. All right. <laughs> Maybe we should go to uh, – are you on the uh, Skype or should we go to the IAQ guest number four? I think go to the guest number four. Let's go to four. All right, let's try that, Pete. All right, you got me? Oh, nah, oh, I got you. All right. What's going on with the Donnybrook, Pete? What's happening? Uh, 
First, let me explain to you what was going on with the technical difficulties. I'm, I'm trying to figure out this Skype. I actually heard you before when you came on with my commission music, and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't get on. I had hung up on the phone, so I was on the computer and the phone at the same time. So anyway, now I'm back on the phone. By next week, we'll figure it out so I can actually talk on Skype, and I won't have to have two mechanisms going at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, let's get down to what's going on with the, with the Donnybrook. Things are, things are heating up, and uh, some of the teams are actually starting to do a little bit of trash talking, although it hasn't hit the – hasn't hit the press yet. It's uh, it's kind of just on the, it's just kind of on the internal emails amongst the groups. But um, I have two uh, two papers in uh, in final format that have been approved in PDF. Uh, one is from the uh, Desikin team, and the second one is from the LGR team. The Heat team is real close to uh, getting their paper in. It's in final review, and I, I'm expecting to get that pretty soon. And as soon as that happens, those three. Uh, Papers will be shared simultaneously with uh, w- amongst the three teams, and uh, also with uh, Mr. Bolden, our uh, Hoosier referee, and they will then start the process to finalize their powerpoints for the live debate at the RIA conference uh, on the 15th of uh, March in Orlando. And I'm going to be working with uh, Patty Harmon, the RIA uh, director of communications, decide how we're going to publish these and get them out there electronically. Um, uh, so that the members in the industry at large could uh, could basically uh, view them and start a little bit of discussion before the actual live debate. Now, the second Donnie Brook going uh, the scoping and pricing debate. Um, I have uh, I have the uh, the blue team uh, has their paper uh, in development now and is close to being finalized. And I'm expecting the red team to get their paper in pretty soon for the first go around and uh, and get that finalized. Those two papers will probably piggyback a little bit past the three uh, drying ones. And then we'll uh, we'll use the same mechanism to get them out there. So uh, um, we get we get them out there for comment, and uh, and both of those teams will also start their process to uh, to get their uh, their uh, powerpoints together for the live debate. And the moderator of that is uh, is Dale Saylor. So that that's the commission report. I'm hoping next week I'll uh, I'll be able to update you boys accordingly uh, to all the listeners. The RIA. I think I screwed that up earlier, Pete. It's too new for me here. Uh, the rest. Well, of... you're not the only one struggling with that radio, Joe. But uh, <laughs> we we figure we'll we'll give a few more weeks and uh, and and everybody will get in line with it. The uh, the LGR team is chiming in here, Pete. They're uh, they're they're talking a big. Pretty good game on the. Uh, you there, man? Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine that Mr. Houdini, the captain, he's 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 one of the top trash talkers in the league, actually. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> hey guys, any questions for each other, real quick? While I've got everybody, Jeff, did you have any questions you wanted to add for Wayne on the uh, media blasting issues? Have there been any uh, problems where people actually, you know, uh, had? They they lost the oxygen because there was so much carbon dioxide in the environment. Well, that's a good question. Um, in the study I referred to that was done back in summer, you know, 2006 in Canada, one of the things that they showed when they were doing their monitoring of the, uh, the, the oxygen concentration, the lowest concentration that they measured was 19.8%, which, you know, 19.5% is, is where you start to get some real concerns. Uh, and then I think a bigger concern was the uh, the, the parts per million, the, uh, the time weighted average that that the occupants or the uh, operators were exposed to, and that's where I think the real concern was is is in regards to the the exposure over time. To so nobody nobody keeled over. <laughs> nobody keeled over. Uh, <laughs> 
No, that's true, but uh, they, they did state in the study, or at least in the report on the study, that, uh, that, that when they were measuring potentially hazardous levels of carbon dioxide and, and low levels of oxygen, that the blasting was stopped until more mechanical ventilation was, was uh -huh. added to the operation. Right. And that, that points out the importance of monitoring during these projects. I think so, and I think that's probably one of the most overlooked uh, or ignored. I, I don't know which one it is, but uh, I have a tendency to feel that it's probably ignored. Uh, that, that's probably one area that, that most contractors do uh, short-circuit, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before the liability on that really turns around and, and starts showing itself. I remember reading a study where they put up, I think it was like five or six people in some kind of a container years ago, and, they, and then they didn't give them much fresh air at all, and the, you know, the carbon dioxide went up, I mean, I think it was, I forget what it was, it was very, very high. Yeah. And, and you know, obviously people getting irritable, but the, the reason they had to terminate the experiment was because the people were smoking, if you can believe it. <laughs> and the cigarettes wouldn't stay lit, apparently, so they couldn't stay in the, they could have had to discontinue the experiment. <laughs> <laughs> had to, had yeah. to have a cigarette. You can't have a, an experiment with people who smoke anymore, I guess. <laughs> Pete, did anything you wanted to add or ask questions of either one of our guests? Well, no, I, uh, I mean, I enjoyed the interview, uh, particularly the first gentleman on, uh, you know, the, the different mechanisms for, uh, you know, I, I, because I think you're right there, there are things that kind of, uh, hasn't been much talked about this in, uh, in the recent years on that. I came back, I remember quite a few years ago when the restoration industry was building up, it, there was a lot of discussion over all the different types of media. So I think it's, it's very useful information, uh, you know, to have that on there. And of course, Jeff, I always, uh, enjoy reading your stuff in, uh, in the IE connections. Just you had a great article in there just this last February. Uh, I was actually talking to Joe on a little bit before we signed on today too. I yeah, like this. Sure. Thank you. I haven't got that copy yet. What uh, I've been out of town. So what what did you write on this month in uh, IE Connections? Uh, yeah, my, I think it was Microbiology 101. Uh, okay, so a little primer for the uh, microbiology people out there, or the people that are interested in microbiology at least, huh? Yeah. Excellent. And are you? Um, going to be contributing some articles in the future for them or i assume you write for a lot of people jeff yeah i've done quite a few i've done several for them and you know, i guess i'll probably continue any um coming out in other publications we should know about uh i think i've had several i don't know i don't keep keep track uh again there's been a bunch of little interviews in bottom line and uh i got one in uh did an interview today for some med American medical news, I think it was. And hey, Jeff, let me jump in. Have you, have you ever submitted anything in the, to the, the RAA, the, our monthly publication, Cleaning Restoration Magazine? Uh, no, I haven't. And I, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to hook you up with that and, yeah. uh, and you know, and even um, uh, actually getting both of you guys to possibly put something in there. There hasn't been anything in there uh, from a technical standpoint on yeah. some of the different media blasting things in quite a while. I think that would be really useful for, for the fire guys, the mole guys, all of them, because it's, you know, it's kind of crossover for a lot of the different disciplines. Yeah. Well, great. steam vapor would be a great thing to write about. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's an incredible tool, and I don't know why anybody, no one's really picked up on it. The use uh, of steam vapor for cleaning? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Steam vapor for killing. It's 100% kill for dust mites and other insects. Uh, it's almost it's instantaneous. It's really miraculous. 
the steam vapor that 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 that's been out there for a while. Oh yeah, you're right. But but nobody they haven't talked about it recently, and um, that that kind of had its round several years ago uh, with the cleaning and restoration guys. Apparently, I think that technology was invented by an Italian bartender. At least this is the story yeah, that I've right. been heard. Fogacci, that's right. The Longi and Fogacci are the big, right. Cause they he, he had to figure a way to get the woman's lipsticks off of the off of the uh, martini glasses, uh-huh. and uh, and he used he used it from the the, uh, uh, the the cappuccino machine, the steam yeah. the steam oh. to get it out, and then they they went they invented the technology. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Interesting, Wayne. You don't happen to sell that technology, do you? No, but, uh, you know, if you want to talk about origins of processes, uh, you know, we we tell this story about the engineer from the Statue of Liberty project, and he actually came up with the baking soda blasting uh, after visiting his dentist, and the dentist used a, a small micro blaster with baking soda on his teeth. And uh, kind of the rest is history. He he woke up in the middle of the night and uh, couldn't couldn't get it out of his head that that could be used on the inside of the statue. So it's funny how things start out. Yes, hey, Wayne, is. have you ever submitted an article to the cleaning and restoration or be interested in doing that? I'd love to. I'd love to do okay. that. Well, probably the best thing if I get if you if you two guys send me an email. Uh, my email is tcpathfinderyahoo.com. Um, uh, Jeff and Wayne, if both of you guys send me an email after the telecast, I'll, I'll hook you up with uh, Patty Harmon, the editor of the magazine. She, she'd love to have you submit some stuff. I think it'd be real useful for the membership. A TC Pathfinder? A uh, PC. P is in Peter? Yeah, P is in Peter. C is in Consigli. Consigli. The Commish. <laughs> hey, with that, guys, it's, uh, it's that time. I really want to thank all of our guests today. First, uh, Wayne, Wayne Lawrence from thank you. the... Uh, uh, I lost my I lost my notes here, but Wayne. Oh, Grand Northern <laughs> Products. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Kamish, Pete Consigli, with uh, the update from the uh, R. Wait a minute, RIA, right? Uh, Restoration right, Industry. Yeah, you better have it right by next week, Joe. <laughs> I'll get it right, Pete. I'll get it right. And and certainly thank you, Jeff May from May Indoor Investigations, and now the uh, May Indoor. Air Investigations, LLC. We really appreciate having all three of you on, and we hope we can have you back. This is Joe Hughes for IAQ Radio saying thanks again to all of our guests and, most importantly, to our growing group of listeners. Had a nice group listening in today. Didn't get a chance to get to the phones today, but we had too much uh, great information coming from the guests. Please email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, and I can forward your questions on to our guests at a later date and we'll answer them on a later show this is it for today join us again next week on iaq radio at 12 o'clock noon fridays thank you cj thank you joe this has been another iaq radio production